you can tell from the songs we've sung and some of Carrie's uh, scripture readings this morning, as we come into the month of December, we typically take this month to remember Jesus, his coming, his birth, his incarnation, and to celebrate uh, Christmas together in that way by worshiping Christ and remembering who he is and what it is that he came to do. So I'd like to uh, just pause before we jump into John 1 this morning and ask for God's blessing on our time in the Word. Lord, I'm reminding, reminded uh, this morning what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, that he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Lord, we confess this morning our weakness, that we are not building or doing anything here apart from you. You are the one who causes life. You are the one who speaks light into darkness. You are the one who takes the seed of the gospel and plants it deep in the hearts of sinners and brings life and brings fruit, brings salvation and redemption. Lord, you're the one who takes discouraged and tired hearts like many of ours and implants joy and strength, increases our faith so that we worship you and love you with all our heart, so that we endure affliction and adversity. You're the one who gives us uh, wisdom. You are the one who gives us the resolve to, to resist the flesh and the devil and the world and to submit only and always to you. So God, as your word is preached this morning, I pray that you would bring the growth, that you would give increase, that you would magnify your name and your glory. We pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So crucial question, what is God like? What is God like? It's not just a crucial question. It is the crucial question that each and every one of us must answer. And eternity hangs in the balance. You really can't afford to get that question wrong. So as we ask this question, what is God like? We need to understand, well, there is a right way and a wrong way to go about answering that question. How do we go about figuring this out? Who is God? What is God like? Is God simply an idea that we reason towards? Is understanding God the prize of philosophers, rationalists? Or is maybe God a powerful energy that we just have to subjectively experience? If you can somehow get in touch with your spiritual side, you can sort of encounter God and discover him that way. Or is he a personal God who has revealed himself to us? The answer is C. We'll just give you the answer up front. It's not those other ways. God is a personal God who reveals himself to us. The only way we can truly and fully know God is through his gracious self-disclosure. What that means, to put it in layman's terms, is that we need God to tell us what he's like. We need him to show us who he is. And the good news this morning is that God has done exactly that. In the Old Testament, there are two pivotal scenes in the book of Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses. In chapter 3 at the burning bush, God declares to Moses his name, I am who I am. He is the self-existent, self-sustaining God. When God declares that his name is the I am, he is telling us that he is the one who simply is, the one who exists eternally in and of himself with no dependency, with no need, with no beginning, and with no end. I am who I am. Am. This is God's self-revelation, his self-disclosure. And then in Exodus chapter 34, 
After Moses asks to see a glimpse of God's glory, God obliges by carefully shielding Moses in the cleft of the rock. And he lets him see the back of his glory as he passes before him. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty." Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Theologian J.I. Packer states that at the burning bush, God had answered the question, in what way does God exist? But here he answers the question, in what way does God behave? Those are always the two questions. If we want to know who God is, we need to know his nature and we need to know his character. What is God? And how does he operate? And together, these two texts in Exodus give us an essential portrait of God's nature and his character from the mouth of God himself. But in the New Testament, as we come to the Gospel of John, we get an even fuller and more complete picture of God's nature and his moral character in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle writes, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you go down to verse 14, John continues. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, as the one who was in the beginning with God, and as the one who is God, as verse 1 tells us, comes to earth to make the nature and the character and the power and the purpose of God known. To reveal God. The New American Standard renders this statement in verse 18, which the ESV translate, he has made him known. They translate this, that he has explained him. The fullest and most thorough revelation of God is the person and work of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus says as much. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He has made him known. He has explained him. Jesus is the self-disclosure and the fullest revelation of God because he is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The scriptures tell us that the glory of God is seen and experienced in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh. And that's really what we celebrate this time of year. It's what we ought to be. When we contemplate the announcement of the angels in Luke, when we contemplate the virgin birth described in Matthew, when we consider the picture of the baby in the manger and the, the, the angels singing and the shepherds marveling, we're talking about the incarnation of the Son of God, a profound theological reality that God is making himself known to us. So here is the question. If we need to know who is God and what is God like, God is like, then we need to look at the incarnation and ask, what does the incarnation of Jesus tell us about God? What does the eternal word that was made flesh communicate? As we behold his glory, what is it about God that we see? This is the question we'll be reflecting on this season. We're going to take the next several weeks to reflect on the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, and consider the attributes of God that are displayed in the incarnation. That'll be sort of a theme that'll take us to several different passages, but we want to consider the birth of Christ and ask, what does this show us about God? What are the attributes of God revealed and displayed in the incarnation? Well, there are many things that we learn about God in the birth of Christ, but our focus today is going to be simple. It's from John chapter 1, and it's the idea of grace. It's grace. The incarnation of Christ displays the glory of God's perfect and eternal grace. The word grace appears four times in verses 14 through 18, which is where we'll be focusing this morning. He tells us in John 14, or 1, 14, that he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16 from him we've received grace upon grace. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word grace here has the idea of a gift, of favor. Grace is God's perfect and sovereign bestowal of favor upon those who cannot merit it. It's his goodness towards those like you and me who don't deserve it. Grace is his free and willing exercise of love towards those who desperately need it but have not earned it. This grace is the very motive of redemption and the very power that energizes our salvation. It is God's perfect grace. And this grace is displayed in the coming of his son, Jesus. I love how God doesn't just tell us that he is gracious, which he does. Remember back in Exodus, the Lord is merciful and gracious, and that should be enough for us. But God doesn't just tell us, he also shows us. He shows us in sending his son, Jesus, displaying his glorious grace. Three precious truths I want us to reflect on this morning. The outline is simple. This is an exercise for you and me to reflect upon God's grace and simply worship. And I hope that you will join me in looking into this text to reflect on these three precious truths. They're all found in verse 16. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I hope this verse, this text, will draw you to a deeper trust in his grace this morning and lead you to worship the Lord Jesus Christ for his grace. 
The first truth concerning God's grace is this. Consider the source of grace. The source of grace. Because it is the fullness of Christ. Look in verse 16. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Where do we find grace? From whom do we get grace? What is the source of grace? John 1 tells us it is Jesus. Jesus. Two amazing statements. One's in verse 14. He says that the only son from the Father is full of grace and truth. In verse 16, it says, from this fullness, we receive grace upon grace. God's grace comes to us through Jesus Christ. This is a simple truth, but oh, so necessary. And to say that we have received from his fullness, this grace, is really a profound statement about his sufficiency. The one who gives us grace is gracious And his grace is not lacking. It is not small. It is not limited. He is full of grace and truth. And it is from this fullness that we receive. Colossians 1.19 tells us about Christ. It says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the infinite God. And as the infinite God, there is no deficiency, no lacking to his grace. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Ephesians 1, 7 says that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we experience the riches of his grace. Psalm 130, verse 7 declares, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Not just redemption, not even just some redemption, but plentiful redemption. So John can write, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And friends, this grace overflows from his fullness towards needy sinners like you and like me. I love what Paul says in Romans 5.20, that where sin increased, grace abounded more and more. Praise God, there is more grace in him than there is sin in us, as many faithful preachers have said in the past. It's true, but we need to hear it again. And we need to know that this is who our God is, and this is what he is like, and this is how he behaves towards us. He overflows in grace. And for him to bestow grace upon every sin that you commit as a believer. And upon not just your sins, but upon every believer ever to live in the history of the world. This does not put the slightest deficit in his supply of grace. From his fullness, we, we have received grace upon grace. He is full of grace and truth. I love how this principle is demonstrated so vividly in the ministry of Jesus. We see it just in John's gospel alone. If you go to John chapter 2, Jesus' first public miracle is one of changing water into wine. And, and Carrie Wilson pointed this out in our Sunday school class uh, just a few months ago, that these six stone jars held 20 to 30 gallons each. That's a lot of wine. It was an abundance It was more than what was necessary, and it was better than the wine that came before it. This is just how Jesus operates. He's not just fixing a problem at the wedding party. He's telling us something about himself, of his nature and his character, that he gives the best, and he gives it abundantly, more than what is needed. This 
is the one from his fullness overflows this grace. In John chapter 6, Jesus sees a crowd and he's teaching them and they're hungry. And what does he do? He takes a small lunch and he multiplies it to feed thousands and thousands of people. And when he's done, it's not just that everybody's full. There are 12 baskets left over. 12 baskets showing his abundance of provision for all the people of God. 12 tribes in Israel, 12 extra baskets. Jesus says, I have enough for all who are mine. All that I call to myself. Jesus later will tell them as he preaches that he is the bread of life. Jesus, again, is not just meeting a need in their stomach. He's showing them a truth that their souls need. That he is the only satisfying and sufficient bread of life and that there is enough for all. It is freely given and it is eternally satisfying. From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. He is full of grace and truth. J.C. Ryle is one of my favorite authors and pastors. He's a couple hundred years older than me, so I look up to him. And he writes this, there is laid up in him as in a treasury, a boundless supply of all that any sinner can need, either in time or eternity. Aren't you glad that you can't exhaust his grace? That it never runs out? That you can never overdraft that account? That Jesus never tires, never runs short? Aren't you glad that our salvation depends not on the the power of our love or the strength of our faith or even the goodness of our works, but rather our salvation depends on the fullness of Christ and his grace? Thomas Brooks in 1669, the Puritan author and pastor wrote this, free grace is the foundation of all spiritual and eternal mercies. Free grace is the solid bottom and foundation of all a Christian's comfort in this world. Were we to measure the love of God to us by our fruitfulness, our holiness, our humbleness, our spiritualness, our heavenly mindedness, or our gracious behavior towards him, how would our hope and our confidence be every moment staggered, if not vanquished? Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've looked to your fruitfulness or your holiness or your humbleness or your spiritualness and your hope has been shaken. You question whether you could truly be redeemed. And there is a right and proper time for self-examination, but not apart from a fuller examination of Christ. And we can have confidence when we examine him because we are standing, if we believe, in his Grace. In Romans 5 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Friends, since Christ is the all sufficient source of grace, we can rejoice in hope. We can stand in grace. We can have confidence of our salvation. Our salvation rests on a solid foundation of Christ, the one who is the eternal and sufficient source of grace. I'm thankful this morning that my acceptance before God does not depend on my limited righteousness, my imperfect love, my weak efforts to serve God, 
my imperfect and sometimes intermittent faith. Rather, my redemption sits squarely on the fullness, fullness of Christ's grace. He is the source of grace. So John can write, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So consider the source. It's Christ. It's Christ. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, as we reflect on the incarnation this season, I want to invite you to worship the Lord for his grace as has been revealed to us in Christ. But secondly, I want us to consider this morning the nature of grace. The nature of grace. And that is, according to verse 16, that it must be received as a gift. Received as a gift. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, there is a story, an infamous story, a story of great pride and foolishness. It's the Tower of Babel, where man attempted to ascend into heaven, to literally build his way there. In the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus, we have the exact reverse image of that story, where in great humility and in great wisdom, God descends to earth. And just in case you've forgotten, the Tower of Babel doesn't end very well. It doesn't work. It's impossible. But Christ accomplishes exactly what he comes to do. He comes to earth and takes on flesh, lives a perfect life in fulfillment of God's law, dies in our place as our substitute, and rises again so that he can redeem and take all who believe to be with him in glory forever. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. So how do we experience this ascending into heaven? It's not by our works of building our towers. It's not even by our keeping of the law. We are simply called to receive the grace of Christ. We do this by faith. We believe and are given new life. Look just a little bit further up the page. John chapter 1 verse 12. It says, to all who did receive him. And then John describes what it means to receive Christ. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice all the language there. Those who receive him. This is a passive act of simply opening our hands in faith. There is no, there is no special accomplishment in such reception. Only the humble acknowledgement of our need and looking to Jesus with open hands. And it says to those who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And what happens then is that we are born. Again, this is a passive idea, something that happens to us. Jesus will explain in John 3, you can't make yourself get born. That's something that happens to you. And this is all descriptive of how we come to experience the grace of Christ. It must be received. This life that we, that we have in Christ is a second work of creation. It's not something we can do, but a miracle of divine grace. The one, verse 3, who, through whom it says, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this is the one who speaks light into existence in our hearts. We simply receive and experience his working. It's not something we accomplish. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself alive. You can't make yourself clean. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. 
This is simply something that must be received, something that Christ does. In John chapter 3, Jesus calls it new birth, being born again. And he tells us here in John 1, chapter 13, that, this, that the energizing power of the new birth is not our will, not even our choices. The energizing power of the new birth is not our effort. It's not even our faith that causes us to be born again. He tells us it is the will of God that causes us to be born again. It is his divine, gracious desire, energized by his divine, gracious power, accomplished according to his divine, gracious purpose. It is all grace from start to finish. Our new birth is a gift that we simply receive. John makes a special point that this grace can't be earned. And he does this by contrasting Jesus with Moses. Look in verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a contrast here. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Moses, as you know, was the prophet of the Old Testament through whom the law was given. And this law was good. And it reflected God's moral character. And it gave them direction to order their life and worship in the nation of Israel. But this law could never save them. It could never change the heart. It could never completely remove their sin. The law could never save. And they couldn't keep it perfectly, even if it could save. They couldn't measure up. And so the law served to condemn and to expose sinfulness and guilt. And you and I know that. We know that we fall short. We know we can't keep the law perfectly. The law came through Moses, that ancient prophet. But Jesus is the prophet who is greater than Moses and the one who comes to fulfill the law, to meet all of the obligations of God's righteous demands and to offer a salvation. That's why Paul says this in Romans 8, 3, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. The law can only take you so far. The law can take you to a knowledge of God and his holiness and guilt and conviction and condemnation, but only Jesus can bring you to salvation. The law could never do that. It was never intended to. Those who are in Christ, Paul will tell us in Romans, are those who have received grace and there is no condemnation. The verdict of the law that we are guilty has been superseded by the verdict of God who declares us righteous in Christ. Those who have received his grace are justified. The gracious removal of our guilt as if we had never broken God's law. And the gracious gift of a righteous standing as if we had always kept God's law. That's grace. And it is received. That status, that standing before God is received through faith. We receive from his gracious hand, the forgiveness of sins, a new status, a new identity, a new community, a new family, a new eternal destiny, new power for life. All of this is received. None of it is earned or attained to by our own virtue. As Ephesians 2, 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as you consider the birth of Christ this Christmas, consider that the coming of Jesus is God's gift of grace to those he loves. And our part is to come and receive, to receive, to rely on his grace, 
to come and experience all that God gives through Christ by trusting in him. Friends, this is the nature of our God. He is a giving God who asks us only to receive in faith all that he has provided. The nature of grace is that it must be received. There's the third truth I want to reflect on this morning. And that's the pattern of this grace. The pattern of grace. For from his fullness, so Christ is is the source, we have all received, that's the nature of grace, it's a gift, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. This is the pattern. What does he mean, grace upon grace? Well, I want us to think about this morning how God's gift of grace has many facets. It's not just one simple act of grace. When we come to Christ, even here in John 1, we see different aspects of this grace. He makes us alive, according to verse 4. He makes us sons of God, according to verse 12. He makes us a new creation, in verse 13, as we are born again. And this is all grace, but it doesn't stop here. The grace that saves us is also the grace that sanctifies us. Titus 2, verse 11, says that the grace of God has appeared. Say, wait a second, I thought Jesus was the one who appeared. Yes, in Jesus, the grace of God appears. And Paul tells Titus that when the grace of God appears, he was bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The same grace that saves us is also the grace that changes us, that makes us holy. And it's the grace that sustains us. In 1 Corinthians 1.4, Paul writes to the church, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, he says this about Jesus, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm so encouraged by this truth that the same God who saves me, the same God who sanctifies me, will also sustain me and keep me and preserve me to the end. It's grace from start to finish, and that's why John can write, We have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And there is more. There is so much more that we don't even have time to go into it all this morning. The grace that saves and sanctifies and sustains also equips us for ministry. It also comforts us in our sufferings. It is his grace that provides spiritual strength for the race. It is the grace of Christ that infuses our faith with joy. It is the grace of Christ that supplies every need. This grace is a gift that never stops unfolding and multiplying. Not just forgiveness, but a new heart. Not just a new heart, but adoption as sons. Not just adoption as sons, but an inheritance. Not just an inheritance, but a place in his kingdom. Not just a place with him in his kingdom, but eternal life. And not just eternal life, but renewal and restoration. And not just all these things, but God in his grace gives us himself. He saves us so that we might stand in his presence and behold his very glory face to face. Paul says, now we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Grace upon grace upon grace. God is the God of abundant grace. I love what Paul says in Romans 5.15. 
that this free gift of grace is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, referring to Adam's failure, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Do you believe that this morning, that, that, that Christ has lavished this grace upon you? Because if you see him as stingy, as withholding grace from you, then you're not seeing, seeing clearly. You're not seeing him in the way that he has revealed himself to us as one who abounds in grace and lavishes it upon us. 1 Timothy 1.14 says, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. John rightly says that we have received from his hand grace upon grace. This is the pattern of the experience of grace in the life of every true believer. We stand on the shore of a great ocean, one that we can never measure the depths, the depths or the breadth. And we experience this unending rhythm of waves washing over us, grace upon grace upon grace, abounding, overflowing, lavished upon us. This is the glorious revelation of God's character. He is gracious. And this is the glorious working out of his purpose, his plan from eternity past to bring about his gracious plan of redemption. And so when we read the, the gospel accounts, when we read Matthew and Luke, as they tell us the historical details of the coming of Christ, I want you to have John chapter 1 in your mind, that we are seeing his glory, the glory of God, full of grace and truth, that no one has ever seen God, but the only God. The Son of God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And what has he made known? Grace. It's grace. I hope you've caught a glimpse this morning of the glory of this grace. I feel so small and inadequate to describe it. And, and, and even, even the challenge of bringing my own heart to fully, to fully realize the, the depth and the gravity of this grace but this is who our God is, and this is what he has done for us. And if this is true, then I want to just practically encourage you this morning, two simple responses. How must we respond? If this is who our God is, if he has, in his self-disclosure, revealed his gracious character, his gracious works to us in the person of Christ, how must we respond? Two simple responses. Number one, cease from your striving and rest in his grace. Cease from your striving to be perfect, to earn God's approval, to make up for your past failures, to keep this facade of being righteous and a good person in front of all these other people. Cease from your striving and rest in his grace. Believe. Believe. We must look to Christ and live. Look and live. I love this story in the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from it in the book of John where the people had been bit by these poisonous 
serpents in the wilderness as judgment for their sin. And as they're dying, they cry out for mercy. And, and God tells Moses to build a serpent out of, out of bronze metal. And he erects it in the middle of the camp. And everyone who looked would be healed. It's a simple illustration of saving faith. Look and live. Cease from your striving. Look to Christ and rest in his grace. You know, we talk a lot about faith and repentance here in this church, as we should. It's a good thing. But there is always a danger in starting to focus more on our faith than on the object of our faith, namely Jesus. There's a danger in starting to think that, that we are saved by the power of our faith. And that's actually a very subtle form of trusting in self rather than trusting in Christ. And it can rob us of the assurance and the joy and the comfort and the confidence that Jesus died to secure for us by shedding his blood. I want to read for you a selection from perhaps Charles Spurgeon's most famous work. It's titled, All of Grace. And he points out this subtle distinction. If you'll bear with me, I'd like to read this selection. Spurgeon writes, remember this, speaking of this distinction between trusting in our faith or trusting in the grace of Christ. He says, remember this, or you may fall into error by fixing your minds so much upon the faith, which is the channel of salvation, as to forget the grace, which is the fountain and source even of faith itself. Faith is the work of God's grace in us. No man can come to me, says Jesus, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So that faith, which is coming to Christ, is the result of divine drawing. Grace is the first and last moving cause of salvation. And faith, essential as it is, is only an important part of the machinery which grace employs. We are saved through faith, but salvation is by grace. Sound forth those words, as with the archangel's trumpet, by grace are ye saved. What glad tidings for the undeserving. He continues with this counsel. He says, never make a Christ out of your faith nor think of it as if it were the independent source of your salvation. Our life is found in looking unto Jesus, not looking to our own faith. By faith all things become possible to us, yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God upon whom faith relies. Grace is the powerful engine, and faith is the chain by which the carriage of the soul is attached to the great motive power. Peace within the soul is not derived from the contemplation of our own faith, but it comes to us from him who is our peace, the hem of whose garment faith touches, and virtue comes out of him and into the soul. Do you lack that peace that Spurgeon was writing about? Perhaps you have spent so much time contemplating your faith that you've not yet spent enough time contemplating Christ, the fountainhead and eternal source of grace. We need to keep this distinction clear, both for the sake of our own souls and our assurance, but also as we proclaim the gospel to others. <clears throat> and even as we encourage one another in sanctification, yes, we must fight for faith, but how do we fight? We fight by resting. It seems counterintuitive. 
that all of our efforts, all of our striving must go into resting in the grace of Christ. We fight for faith by rehearsing and relishing and resting in the sufficiency and power of Christ and his grace. Perhaps some of you are here today and you are far from God. Maybe you feel trapped by your sin. The law has maybe started to do its work in your life. You feel the sting of guilt, the burden of shame, the pain of regret, the bitter taste of your own failures to please God. If that's the case, then today hear the call of God to come and receive grace and find comfort for your wounded conscience. Find hope for the future so that you can have this peace that Charles Spurgeon was talking about. The peace within the soul. Knowing that you have been made right with God. Knowing that you are no longer condemned. Knowing you are declared righteous in Christ. It comes by receiving his grace. Receive him by faith today. Cease your striving and believe. Look and live. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. But it is the gift of God that has been extended to you in the person and work of Jesus. And it overflows from his fullness. And it is yours today if you will turn from sin and receive by faith this indescribable gift. So first response to this truth of God's grace in Christ is that we cease our striving and we rest in his grace. Believe. But secondly, I want to invite you and call you to worship him for this grace, for he is worthy. We cannot, as believers, if you have tasted this grace, you cannot contemplate this gift and be unmoved. Otherwise, I question whether you really have a pulse, spiritually speaking. If you know your sin, but you also know Christ, then this truth should cause worship and joy and gratitude to spring up and overflow from your soul. If we have contributed to our salvation, if we have attained to it by some virtue of our own, then we should get at least partial credit, right? And that makes sense. That means that salvation would be a wage paid to us. But that's not how it works. If salvation is all of grace, then Christ deserves our adoration and our praise. Grace that has been received must be met, met with gratitude. So if you have received this grace, then I exhort you today to rejoice and give thanks for the glorious gift of grace God has given you. Cold worship is forgetful of grace. A discontented heart, because there's something in this world God hasn't given you, is a heart that is dismissive of his saving grace. A bitter spirit towards others for their sin against you is a, a heart that is unmoved by God's grace. My prayer today is that his grace would soften our hearts as a church and fill us with joy that overflows in eternal praise to God and joyful witness to a world still in need of grace. The incarnation tells us many things about God. He, speaking of Christ, has revealed him. He has made him known. He has explained him. And one of the things we see as we behold his glory is this magnificent display of God's grace. We'll close with these words from a song many of you were probably familiar with. The refrain goes like this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, our desire this morning is to do just that, to simply look to Jesus, to look full on his wonderful face, to behold him, to see him and all that he has revealed to us, to see the light of glory and grace as manifested in the Son of God. Lord, give us eyes to see. Lift our gaze from all of the lesser glories of this world, the things that clamor for our attention and our worship and our desire and our trust. Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Show us your glory. Convince us of your grace. And I pray that you would draw out from us simple faith that rests in that grace and joy that worships. Lord Jesus, be glorified today. That's my desire. We want to thank you for your inexpressible gift to us, laying aside your glory in heaven that you had with the Father from eternity past to come here to give us something we do not deserve, that we could never earn, to lavish upon us the riches of your grace. We thank you and we worship you. Amen.